You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, June 25th, 2014, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. And Evan Bernstein. Here we go once again. How's everyone? Good, Evan. Good. Doing Super. Good. Good. So Jay is running late this evening. He may join us later if he gets back in time. We'll see. Hope so. Hope so. And if you probably noticed, we're recording the show about a week earlier than we usually do because we are gearing up for our various conferences in July. We have to re- get a little bit ahead of our recording. So, But this show will be going up on July 5th. Oh, you know what mm. July 5th is? The uh, day after my birthday. Happy birthday, Yeah, but who Bob? cares about that, Bob? It's... <laughs> <laughs> More importantly, July 5th is P.T. Barnum's birthday. Bob, you were so close to sharing a birthday with P.T. Barnum. How does that make I, you feel? I don't feel bad at all. Who's older, Bob <laughs> or well, P.T. Barnum? Now, now Bob can be the most famous person born on that day. Otherwise, you would <laughs> born, have been top. Born, born on the 4th of uh, There's true. a movie about that, Good I point. think. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess Didn't. that is a famous day, isn't it? Uh, well, <laughs> July 5th, though, yeah, P.T. Barnum's birthday. P.T. stands for Phineas Taylor. He uh, is well known in the skeptic community for being a bit of a hoaxer type. Uh, he was... He was uh, it's a combination of hoaxer and huckster. Yeah, yeah, hoaxer. Hoaxer and um, huckster, yep. He traveled with his uh, circus, which he uh, eventually merged with Bailey's Circus to create Barnum and Bailey's Greatest Show on Earth. He is the originator of the Fiji mermaid, a creature with the head of a monkey and the tail of a fish. It's worth noting that uh, P.T. Barnum himself was born with the head of a baby and the body of a baby. And do you know where he was born? I think he was born in Connecticut. That's exactly right. Bridgeport, yeah. Connecticut. He eventually became the mayor of Bridgeport, Connecticut. That explains a lot. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Speaking of hucksters and hoaxers. I don't know. He seems actually like, I, I think there's something about him being an admitted uh, huckster that... Um, made him kind of an okay politician. I don't know. Uh, I wasn't there at the time, obviously, but he was committed to uh, improving the town's public works, like installing gas lighting and uh, doing a better job of enforcing the prostitution laws and things like that. He was also in uh, the Connecticut legislature where he spoke out in favor of black suffrage and Indian slavery. So, yeah, I think he was okay. He was also uh, a philanthropist. He was what he called a profitable philanthropist in that he his hope was to was to do good works that would have positive returns. Um so which really shut up PT Parnum, you're a philanthropist. Um, <laughs> Got to make money to share money. He, uh, well, that's what I mean, though. He's not talking about it in terms of actually, like, doing philanthropy that earns him money. He, he was literally talking about doing philanthropy that beautifies the city and, you know, helps people. He was right. just being a philanthropist. He just put a nice 
spin on it a nice spin you know on such a terrible word like philanthropist i don't know whatever but he, he gave a lot of money to tufts university i didn't realize this until recently but uh he gave so much money to tufts university that they were able to establish a museum and a hall for the department of natural history and if you go to tufts today and are in the department of biology you will be in pd barnum's hall and Apparently, uh, because of the relationship between Barnum and Tufts, the school adopted Jumbo the elephant as their mascot. And Tufts students are apparently known as Jumbos. <laughs> Can't imagine that's very happy for a lot of them, but okay. Yeah, Barnum was an interesting character. I, I think you're right, Rebecca. He kind of was like an open huckster. And it's like, hey, yeah. this is just I'm doing this for entertainment purposes. And in fact, very much like Houdini and Randy... He mm -hmm. exposed fraudsters of the day, including spiritualists and mediums. Mm -hmm. So uh, he was kind of like the honest liar, you know, kind of approach. You know, where yeah. it's, it's all good, it's all hype, but everyone, it's kind of like a wink and a nod. You're doing it for entertainment, and as long as you're kind of open about the fact that you're, it's all hype, it's, it's okay. Mm -hmm. Barnum also, at the time of the Cardiff Giant, was, uh, you know, making headlines across the country in the 1800s. He offered $50,000 for the giant. And the people, uh, the group of investors who owned it at the time turned him down. And therefore, he instead hired a man to model basically a fake Cardiff giant. So yes. he had the fake of the fake. Fake of a fake. <laughs> yeah. It's just as good as the original fake. Of course. <laughs> yeah. And it co costs a lot less, actually. 50 grand. That's a tremendous amount of money. Oh, then and, and now and, as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and you got to be cool if you have a psychological effect named after you, the Barnum effect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is... Um, a form of sub subjective validation where you take a general statement that could apply to anybody and you apply it specifically to yourself, you know, hunting for details that validate the the statement about yourself. So it's a critical part of, for example, cold readings. So happy birthday, P.T. Barnum. He's dead now. He can't. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's go on to some news items. Uh, a recent study that was published caught my eye. I wrote about it on science-based medicine about food fears. This is a Cornell University survey, really. Um, they surveyed 1,008 mothers. I'm not sure why they focused on mothers. Asking about foods they avoid and why. The results were not that surprising. They found that mothers who avoided specific foods because they were afraid that there was something unhealthy about them, like high fructose corn syrup, for example, uh, were more likely to get their information from the internet than from other sources. It's not exactly a shocker. They were also more likely to want to share their information with other people to evangelize their fear of high fructose corn syrup. They weren't, however, more likely to be willing to spend more money to avoid the ingredient than people who were not especially fearful of specific food items. So I'm not sure what that means. It just could mean that everybody isn't really willing to pay that or is they, it's not that they weren't willing to pay for it. They just weren't willing to pay any more than the other people in the survey who didn't have specific food fears. Does that make sense? You know, surveys are very difficult to interpret. There's so many con possible confounding factors. Like, there, you know, people who get their information from the internet, internet could be different in many ways from people who are more likely to get their information from TV or another source. So it's hard to say what relationship that has to something so specific, like, you know, being afraid of high fructose corn syrup, uh, for example. Although it's easy 
to speculate about cause and effect because there is so much misinformation on the internet. Yeah, I don't know. I would I would expect people who get their news from the television to be just as misinformed, if not more so, than people who get their news from the television or from yeah. the internet. You know, well, what with Doctor Oz and all. Right. Yeah. Exactly. No, I agree. So yeah, yeah. So surveys, it's interesting, but I don't know that we could really make too many scientific conclusions based upon it. The whole um, issue or idea of food fears, I thought I find very interesting, because you know this is something we write about quite frequently. That uh, there are a, few, a number, I think, of cognitive fallacies or or biases involved with um, this whole phenomenon. One is. Uh, of course, the naturalistic fallacy, which we talk about a lot, the notion that things that are natural are wholesome and safe and good for you and things that are synthetic or artificial are are automatically dangerous and to be avoided. When in, There's no reason to assume that. Things that are synthetic can be perfectly safe and things that are natural can kill you. It doesn't really say anything about the wholesomeness or safety of, of food. Uh, another one is a specific heuristic is chemophobia. This one was um, explicitly stated by the food babe, if you remember. She said specifically, if the name ha- if, if an ingredient has a long name that's difficult to pronounce, you probably shouldn't eat it. That's her explicitly <laughs> stated heuristic <laughs> yeah. for how to know when you should avoid a, an, a food ingredient because it has a long, difficult to pronounce name. That's right. It's the four syllable rule, which is kind of like the five second rule when it comes to food. They're about yeah. equally uh, valid. The it should just be rule. called the good marketing rule because if a company does make up a chemical and puts it into food, they'll just come up with a snappy name for it, you know, and call it that. Like uh, artificial sugars and things like that. You know, mm-hmm. they all have a nice name. Equal. I don't know what the hell it is. Hey, equal. equal equal's good. E- you know, if it's yeah. equal, it must be good. Yeah. I, I had an interesting conversation with David Gorski uh, about the term chemophobia, which he doesn't like. Because he says that a lot of right. industry apologists have latched onto that term as a way, because you know, the, the part of the problem with skeptical activism is that there are ideological groups that pretend to be skeptics, but really they're ideological. And one mm-hmm. such group is our industry apologists. I'm mm-hmm. not saying exactly what their motivation is, because I'm sure there's a, a variety. But for example, if, you know, groups are scaremongering, like the food babe, you know, scaremongering about certain chemicals, then the, the skeptical scientific position is in line with industry uh, interests. But then there are times when the science isn't in line with industry interests. So, uh, like, for example, on global warming, on, you know, the link between cancer and smoking, for example. And the, there's a lot of uh, things said about the pharmaceutical companies that are, that are just not true or that are pseudoscientific. But in fact, they do a lot of shady things, you know, so they sort of have to be held accountable for the stuff they actually do, uh, but not be confused with the, you know, the conspiracy theories about big pharma, which are not based upon anything. But so it's easy for, you know, industry apologists to position themselves to be in aligned with the skeptical movement because we overlap in a lot of issues, but then sneak in, you know, a lot of pro-industry stuff that isn't really strictly science or skeptically based. Does that make sense? I think we actually talked about this in a, well, we didn't talk about this, but in a previous episode, um, maybe a year ago or so, we talked about a news item where somebody uh, wrote an article about chemophobia. And uh, I remember getting emails after that with people pointing out like, you know, the guy who wrote that is this industry apologist who has also said X, Y, and Z, and it's really problematic. 
So, yeah, it doesn't surprise me that it's happening more and more. That's exactly his point, is that the the industry apologists have are, have really coined the phrase chemophobia, even though I think I like the what the, what it means, you know. Yeah, I mean, it does have a usage. Sure. Yeah. yeah. The the, um, the other aspect of the dis- of the discussion was whether or not it implies that it's a mental illness. Uh, and David's point was that some of the industry apologists are actually going that far. Of course, I completely reject that. It has, you know, yeah, that's, that's, that's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, Apol- apologophobia. Yeah. I, I likened it to triskaidekaphobia. I mean, nobody yeah. thinks that fear of the number 13 is a literal mental illness. It's just a culturally based, you know, fear. And so the term phobia, so sure, it does have a certain meaning within, you know, a psychiatric uh, lexicon, but it's also colloquially, it's used to just mean like a general fear of something. So I don't know. I, I see his point. It's yeah. Kind of, and it, on the phobia point, I, I was just thinking that it, the whole thing reminds me of the Islamophobia debate that goes on in which on the one side you have people who are, uh, secularists who are concerned about Islam, Islamists, they sometimes, Islamists, they sometimes say, um, people who specifically want Sharia law to get into the government, things like that. Yeah. Um, but then on this, at the same time, you have, uh, the BNP and, and similar people who are actually doing this fear mongering racist stuff. Uh, and so it, it's a difficult job to say, you know, the, the word Islamophobia has now been applied to both of those groups, mm-hmm. and it's difficult sometimes to untangle what's fair and what's not and what the word even means because people exactly. are on it. It sucks. It's so complicated because everything is tainted because yeah. we're, get, we're getting crowded in from all angles. And, you know, we're, we're trying to clear out this space where that's science-based and logical and critical um, you know, that we call skepticism, but people are constantly trying to crowd in on our space because they want to use our, our methods and our terms superficially in order to promote, you know, an ideological agenda. It's terrible. They're ba- so we- they're basically playing in our sandbox without permission. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, well, it's, it's tough. It makes it complicated. It's hard to keep them and it out. Ta- I know. It, it taints our brand, which is the thing that really right. bugs me the most. Hell, that's, hell, that's what's happened to the word skeptic as far as I'm concerned. I know. Yeah. Climate change skeptics, you know, Nine eleven, nine eleven skeptics. Yep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. My fa- my favorite phobia is coulrophobia, fear of clowns. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now that's a real condition. Absolutely, I think it might oh, be yeah. one of the one of the biggest phobias on the planet, or at least and right States. and rightfully so because it 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 affects what? the terror sensors in the brain. <laughs> Get it? <laughs> oh my god. It's off topic, but it is interesting that the same kind of makeup that is meant to elicit humor can also be terrifying. Why that overlap? It's interesting. Oh my god, there's a fear of northern lights, auroraphobia. <laughs> All right. Uh one last one last food fear heuristic is uh the false dichotomy of demonizing foods as bad. Or thinking of foods, this is a good food and that's a bad food. Very, that very rarely applies because it's more likely that, well, everything in moderation is okay and you could overdo anything. So you have to put it in the context of an overall diet and, you know, how much of it you're eating. Uh, and people who think that like they're going to be healthy by just avoiding, 
you know, these one or a few evil or bad foods. It's kind of a, a way to try to simplify nutrition, to boil it down to just a couple of demonized food groups or foods, and it just doesn't make rational sense. It always makes me laugh because I think you're right. I think it does come from a place of wanting to simplify things, but at the same time, so many people reject the correct explanation and way to, like, if you want to lose weight, for instance, uh, it's very simple. It's very, just eat less. <laughs> uh, it's and like exercise. as simple as it can possibly be. You don't even have to exercise. Like, <laughs> well, uh, so I would say I would boil it down to eat less and move more yes. only because if you just eat less, your metabolism could slow down to compensate. And Not you, really though. If like, you don't also try to at least be reasonably physically active, you may, you know, be, your body may compensate. I mean, no, but no, that's not true though. <laughs> like, you're, that's not true, doctor. It's, I know you're a doctor, but I mean, it's, it, it's, it's true when you're getting down to counting one calorie here and one calorie there. But if you eat less than you're expending, you're gonna lose weight. And for most people, your metal, your metabolism is never going to slow down to the point where you can't. Uh, lose weight just by eating less. Oh, like, that's not what I'm saying. I totally agree with you. If you if you reduce your caloric intake enough, you will lose weight. But if you make like a a minor adjustment in your caloric intake, knock off 100 or 200 calories a day, you you may then burn one or 200 fewer calories a day to compensate. If you drop it down by 500 calories a day, but you know you're still you, then almost certainly you're going to start losing weight. So it's it, it's more effective, I think, to you know, make a conscious effort to at least maintain your physical activity. Plus, I exercise mean, is good for you anyway. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, yeah. I agree that it's good for you and that it's a great thing to do. I just think that a lot of people get hung up on this idea of metabolism and they get this uh, completely inaccurate view of what metabolism is and how m big of a role it can play in uh, whether or not you're losing weight. There are definitely people who are overweight and just assume that they have a slow metabolism. And that's why when in fact, it's, it's just merely the fact they're just eating more calories than they need. Uh, so I think that it's, it's good to remind people that like, hey, if you want to lose weight, all you have to do is eat less, eat less mm. than you're, you're burning. Well, eat that's less it. than you're burning, right? But yeah, part of that is maintaining your burning. It's also, I, when I was writing that too, I also, the other irony there is that you, you can really make very simple overall nutritional advice, which is eat a variety of food, a lot of plant food, and not too much, right? That's, I can't remember who first said that, but that's, yeah. you know, if you follow that basic simple rule, you're like 90, 95% of the way to eat there. And for that last 5%, it's not worth all the complexity and everything. You know what I mean? And this is for you, the average healthy person, I need to add. Like obviously, people have special dietary needs like diabetics, for example. It can get more complicated. But, you know, you have to worry about things like glycemic index. But for most people, if you follow that advice, you're probably going to get as close to, you know, an optimal diet as is logistically feasible. And it's probably not worth it to try to eke out that last 1% or 2%, you know, of of optimality by getting all really complicated. So the, the bottom line, I guess, is that people complicate things in the wrong ways and they oversimplify them in the wrong ways. You know, if that makes sense. Well, let's move on. Bob, I understand that there is a significant follow-up on the Higgs boson. So yeah, the Higgs boson is in the news again. Recent evidence shows that it may just be the exact type of boson that, that the theory predicts which is actually maybe surprisingly a little bit of a bummer. I don't think so. I do. 
So, uh, <laughs> of course, I, I said a little bit of a bummer. I, I qualified it. So, a quick overview of uh, overview. Uh, a boson in this context is not a crewman responsible for ship maintenance. Boson. It's a fundamental class of particle for the entire universe, along with uh, le- the leptons. Uh, it's actually kind of hard to get more fundamental than this. Uh, bosons transmit force like photons and the strong force, for example. Uh, these are the forces that are felt by the leptons, like quarks and electrons and, of course, neutrons and, and protons. All right, so back in the summer of 2012, uh, it, was a, it was an awesome summer scientifically. Everybody was talking about CERN and and uh, they they finally announced and and officially as well the uh that it had discovered the horribly named god particle which of course is uh, the higgs boson <laughs> it's been said that this particle imbues mass uh, onto all particles in the universe although that's uh, what was the uh, point of that by the way is like is mass somehow more of a godly force than any of the other forces well, didn't it come about because of a joke? I think it had to do with the fact that it was very hard to pin down, very hard to determine. Apparently, it comes from a book called The God Particle of the Universe is the Answer, What is the Question, uh, by Leon Letterman. What is six times eight? <laughs> a, lot of people, a lot of people call it the goddamn particle. Uh, so people say that this particle imbues mass to all particles, but that is an oversimplification. It's the Higgs field. That permeates the universe that, that confers the mass. Uh, the particle itself is really a, a manifestation or uh, excitation of that field, uh, but it also happens to be exquisite evidence uh, of the uh, of its existence, the field's existence. So particles uh, coupling to the field are compared to seeds moving through a liquid or a molasses, even responding to it in a way that that gives them mass. Um, so once the Higgs was found, uh, the CERN scientists' work was really far from over. Uh, they, they had to determine if, if Higgs was the exact particle predicted by the standard model of physics. If you remember, they kept referring to it as a Higgs-like particle, uh, which means that they could have found some odd cousin particle uh, to the Higgs that was different in some ways that they hadn't really been looking for. Um, and uh, it also could have been an imposter particle that kind of resembled uh, Higgs in, in various ways but had nothing to do with all that mass imbuing stuff. So that would have been weird, and that would have been a bummer. Uh, so, I, or in some ways, really cool. So, after pouring through some of the uh, the hundreds of petabytes of data, I don't think they got through a lot of it. But uh, this is from the 2011 to 2012 run. Um, they believe they know now. They identified a handful of instances in which the Higgs decayed into something called the tau lepton, and that sounds uh, unusual, but it's 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 essentially just a very very heavy brother to an electron. It has about 3,500 times its mass, uh, but the fact that it's so heavy actually made it uh, very much easier to detect. And this is exactly what the theory predicts uh, should happen, and, and this is really the bottom line of this latest news item. Uh, so it seems then that the, the Higgs they found is the Higgs described in the standard model of physics that gave rise to this uh, to this whole endeavor in the first place. So that so that's cool. Uh, but uh, remember that the confidence level at this point is like a 3.8 sigma. Meaning that there's a one chance in ten thousand that uh, what they mm-hmm. found uh, is another is another type of Higgs or not even the Higgs at all, I guess. Yeah, but what are the odds of that happening, though? <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so they want to get they want to get to obviously a gold standard five sigma, which is a one in two million, and I, I think they'll get there. Um, so th- the reason why uh, I think it's, it's a bummer, a lot of scientists are happy and uh, and disappointed. It's kind of bittersweet because. Um, only disappointed only in the sense that it seems very unlikely now that uh, 
that this is really a weird version of the Higgs that could point to brand new physics, which is always um, a welcome scenario, especially now that uh, pretty much all the predictions of the standard model are have been nailed down with the Higgs being essentially the, the last one. So a new physics would be great because, you know, it's new. And, uh, and then it's also uh, the unknown can be very exciting. But also the standard model makes no predictions for dark matter and gravity. So a weird Higgs detection could help point uh, to some of those new theories, uh, which um, everyone's just kind of like waiting for. Any, any hint of, uh, of new physics would be fantastic. So another bummer is that this discovery will, uh, I'm sure, dampen enthusiasm for alternate theories like supersymmetry, uh, in which all particles may have... Uh, uh, unseen as of yet, but slightly different twin particles. So this actually uh, hurts out a bit. But uh, I never cared much for supersymmetry anyway, so it doesn't bother me that much. But um, So we'll see if they could really nail this down to five sigma and uh, see if they could also maybe get some other hints of new physics as well. Yeah, I mean, I see what you're saying, but I mean, the standard model, I mean, I'm kind of I accepted the fact that the standard model is probably correct and I'm no longer shocked when experiments support no. the standard model of physics. No, but it w- yeah, and from that point of view, absolutely. Um, but I'm, but still, it would have been pretty cool if it was something yeah. exotic, and you know, and still, you know, find the regular Higgs as well. Well, physicists are just going to have to think a little harder, or invent <laughs> an AI, create an AI, and have it do it for them. Ah, please. Yeah, but would the AI have hmm. free will, Bob? Ha. Huh. Ah. Yeah, I see, what I, exactly? see what, I see what you did there. Go yeah, ahead. Do we do we have free will even? How do we know if we have do we free have will? free will? I don't know. It's been how can talking. you even ask that question? I mean, when you say oh. do do we have free will? Do you mean do, are we just like running off of? All right, but Jay, what did you think of the movie Free Willy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 it was based on a true story. Yeah, did that so. did that whale choose to leave, leave that that pen of his own free will or? Was it just a consequence? Of oh, I didn't see the end. The Thanks for actions. ruining it for me. <laughs> well, it's in the title, Evan. <laughs> oh, well, you know, I, I don't always assume. Can't judge a movie by its title, yeah. right? The never-ending story. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't the fact that I can think proof that we have free will? Well, Evan, Evan, give us a back up a little bit. Tell us what's going on here. Yeah, yeah. So some recent news about free will. Comes from live, a report from Live Science, also followed up by The Independent and CNET. The idea that we make autonomous choices may be nothing more than background noise in our brain, according to research at UC Davis, University of California at Davis. And not only that, this activity occurs almost a second before people consciously decide to do something, if you can believe that. I can believe it because this has been shown in like study after study after study though, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's old news. Yeah. yeah. That's the old news. Uh, this particular study though, titled Spontaneous Neural Fluctuations Predict Decisions to Attend. And it was published in the Journal of Cognitive Neuroscience. According to the research, decisions could be predicted based on the pattern of brain activity immediately before a choice was made. But I believe what's new about this is that what was conceived as just the background noise of the brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, may actually have some purpose to it. And perhaps it's not just noise, right? Here's what they well, did. Well, uh, that's not really new either, Evan. I mean, nobody, the background noise of the, of the brain is like the pacemaker of the brain. It's the activity mm-hmm. that keeps things chugging along. Nobody thought that it was, didn't do anything. Just to clarify, you know, I know this article is very superficial 
And it's, you know, I'm kind of backing you up on this one because there's a lot of neuroscience here. But the, the article, I, I wasn't not qualified. It wasn't wasn't <laughs> impressed with the way they discussed this item, and I don't agree with the bottom line that they're discussing here. But go, go ahead and finish it, and then I'll give you my my thoughts on it. Well, here's what the study was: they had volunteers, and they were asked to sit in front of a screen and focus on its central point while their brain's electrical activity was recorded. Okay, so they're staring at a screen and they're recording the brain activity of the subjects. They were then asked to make a decision to look either left or right when a Q symbol appeared on the screen and then to report their decision. The Q to look left or right appeared at random intervals so the volunteers could not consciously or unconsciously prepare for it. And the researchers found that the pattern of activity in the brain sec- seconds before the Q symbol appeared, as before the volunteers knew they were going to make a choice, could predict the likely outcome of the decision. Here's what the, one of the co-authors, his name is Jesse Bengson, and uh, here's what he told Live Science. Though purposeful intentions, desires, and goals drive our decisions in a linear cause-and-effect kind of way, our findings show that our decisions are also influenced by neural noise within any given moment. This random firing or noise may be the carrier upon which our consciousness rides in the same way that radio static is used to carry a radio station. So that's why I thought that this was this part was the new part in yeah. pertaining to the uh, to the background noise. Yeah, I think the new part here is that the background noise can actually predict the decision. That's the new part, but not okay. that. But this is I know this is kind of a subtle thing, but just to clarify, it's the you know the background noise is basically the brain just uh, activity. Which the whole purpose of it is sort of to keep you awake and conscious and to keep things chugging along. You know, it's like the alpha waves when you're calm on an EEG. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a very steady background rhythm of brain activity, right? Cause without that, you'd basically be in a coma. Uh, so it's, it, <laughs> that's bad. Yeah. So it's not like it's worthless radio static. It's actually like more, think of it more like the pacemaker of the brain. I think that's more of a better way to think about it or the alerting activity that's built into the brain. You know, that's there for that purpose. The, so it's also been well established that looking at brain activity, you know, about 600 milliseconds or whatever prior to a, signaling that you've made a conscious decision, we could see activity happening in the subconscious parts of the brain. And there have been a couple of experiments, and now this is another one, where you could actually predict based upon that pre-decision activity in the brain, which decision, like in a right or left kind of forced binary choice, the subject is going to make. However, they didn't make this clear in the article either. It's not 100%. You know, it's it's like 60%. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. you're pulling a little bit of signal out of that noise. You know, it's not that dramatic. But, you know, you can't, it can't be statistically significant if you do enough trials. So I wouldn't even say that that's been established to the point where I would take it as a given. I would just say that the evidence so far is pointing in that direction, but I'd like to see a lot more replication before I say, okay, that's definitely a phenomenon. That's definitely happening. But the thing I don't agree with is the interpretation that the news article is running with. And that is, that this could be an explanation for free will. You don't think the two are connected? No, I don't. Because they're saying that... So the idea, Jay, is that um, we don't have true free will because our brain activity is deterministic and it's following along its you know cause and effect processes 
that you're, you're not outside of your brain. You can't in any way violate the cause and effect of the electrical activity in your brain. I and therefore, the, the brain's just doing what it's doing, and you're experiencing you're it. You, you sort of have the illusion of making decisions, but it's really just activity that's predetermined and happening in your brain. So now this guy's saying, yeah, but if the random noise is, it's like, it's like throwing in a random die roll, you know, to the decision making process here, that that, um, could explain free will, but that, that wouldn't give you free will. It would just introduce a random cause and effect that's, that you can't control, right? Right. If anything, you could argue that this is anti-free will. If the background noise of your brain is affecting your choice, that's an argument against you making a, a conscious decision, right? Yeah, but it's all your brain though. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, all of, all of the functions in your brain collectively from our user experience, we can sit there, contemplate yeah. what we want to do, how we feel, and like all these things get factored in. You know, random ideas or seemingly random thoughts might occur to us, but we do end up choosing on some level what we're going to do, what we're going to say, how we're going to behave. Yes, that's correct. You do make choices, but are those choices just another thing that your brain does that's deterministic? Yeah, well, and I think that that's, what the sort of free will debate has kind of become. I hesitate yeah. to even talk about this because I know we're going to get angry emails from philosophers uh, and we deserve them. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I, I feel like uh, when talking about free will, we're not necessarily talking about uh, a you, you know, spirit that is making a decision. I think we're just talking about something that's not deterministic, which a purely random Decision-making process isn't, by definition, deterministic. Well, that, well, that's I, I I don't know if I agree with that in the context of free will. Like, if I roll a die, that's a quote unquote random result. But, Somewhat. I mean, it's yeah. not random, but it's but not truly it's not. Random. But yeah, but it, but it's still deterministic. It's just right. it's just difficult to predict. But right? that's just it. No, but it's a die chaotic. roll is deterministic, but yeah. it's not truly random. Like that's the I think that's the whole point when we're talking about like a purely random thing. We're talking about something that is not in well, any way determined. Well, there is nothing purely random. That, but but right. Rebecca, that's a question. Quantum I events. I don't know if this study even tried to answer the question of is this background noise truly random or is there a pattern to it? And I think that that's a fair yeah. criticism. I'm I'm just trying to differentiate between saying that um, you know, that this is purely about you know, trying to figure out if uh, if there is like this sort of controlling spirit in the body kind of thing, and talking about something that is is deterministic. And yeah, like I've I've seen a lot of uh, studies and things on potential quantum effects in the brain that do attempt to uh, solve the the free will problem by talking about purely random events events in the brain using quantum events, but none of them have been terribly successful that I've seen. Yeah, but I know that there are philosophers who are interested in the question of free will who would argue that even if you could point to quantum effects in the brain that introduce a truly not you know random element, that still doesn't give you free will because it's still just another physical mechanism that's leading ultimately to your brain neurons firing in such a way that you make a decision. So this is a philosophical debate that we are certainly not going to solve tonight on the show, yeah. you know, whether or not the way the brain works equals free will or not. But 
you know, Jay is right in that whether or not you think ultimately that we have free will or what that means, we still make decisions. And right. what, what the neuroscientists are really exploring is the neuro, neuroanatomical correlates of decision making. And I don't even know that it really enters into the debate of free will because I, the philosophical debate, I think the philosophical debate is happening at a different level than what these researchers are looking at. That's kind of the point that I'm making. Yeah, it, I think that's fair. It doesn't really address the real deep philosophical question. It's just that how are different parts of the brain interacting in the decision-making process? You know what I mean? So your your point is that why did they bring free will into this? Because at all? that's that's the headline, right? I mean, that's right. What, that's how you sell the headline. That's how we get to talk about it on the SGU. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> Let me throw something in about the uh, the rolling the dice, though. I mean, you can make rolling Please. dice deterministic, but uh, most rolls, I would say, or or. Things like rolling dice are pretty are so chaotic that you really could not determine beforehand uh, what was going to be rolled because there's just way too many variables. And That's you different and than you being purely random, though. Yeah, it's yeah. it's right. difficult. As I said, it's difficult to predict. Maybe impossible, but it's still. If you did have infinite information about, yes, it's chaotic. If we're talking nonlinear dynamics. It's yeah. not. It's not. Ne- yeah. It's not necessarily linear. Okay. Deterministic. All right. Well, now that we've solved one of the hardest problems in philosophy, let's you're move welcome, on. You're welcome, philosophers. <laughs> you're welcome. Moving on. Uh, Jay, for the, the angry emails. Nature of the universe. Next. <laughs> Jay, you're going to tell us. There's another one. Good one. This is a good non-controversial topic. <laughs> do, do parents have a right to get their unvaccinated kids into public school? Oh my God. I mean. It, we're so programmed by the society we live in because I actually got – it's a little difficult to answer this question because I really do believe that people should be able to make their own decisions. However, as we learned in Star Trek, <laughs> sometimes the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Or the one. Or the one. Or the two. Or the two. They never brother. say the two. So it's finally come to this, guys. Local governments in the United States have to now get involved because we are having a vaccination crisis in the USA. About effing time. Yeah, right? If there's one thing, you know, one of the things they should be doing. This is a no-brainer, you know? You don't vaccinate your kids, you don't go to school. That's it. It's easy. Right? So as, That's as many, easy! As many of <laughs> our Ask listeners Ask me a question. Know, I'm not afraid. <laughs> Many know this. Yes. Vaccinations um, have freaking been blamed for causing diseases like what, autism and, uh, you know, poisoning our children with uh, different chemicals, mercury, formaldehyde, blah, blah, blah. Every freaking thing that's in it, they say, is, is poison and it's, you know, it's ruining the health of our children and everything. Meanwhile, the average human keeps living longer and longer and longer. And I've got to tell you something, you know, our, our lifespan increases are certainly not propped up by Big Macs. In the 1930s, over one quarter of a million people per year would get the whooping cough. In the 40s, when the vaccines came on the scene, one was developed for whooping cough, and it was given to the vast majority of the population here in the United States. And by the mid-1970s, the number of cases dropped to around 1,000 per year, just 1,000 from a quarter million. In 2012, the CDC determined that there were over 48,000 cases of whooping cough in the United States. So how did we go from 1,000 back in the 70s to 48,000 in the year 2012? The evidence for the effectiveness of vaccinations is nothing less than staggering. In spite of it, the anti-vaccine trend continues to grow and continues to blow all of our collective minds. So 
What's actually going on now is a federal judge, William F. Kuntz II of Brooklyn, New York, has ruled against three families who sued the state because they claim their right to the free exercise of religion was violated. Now, here's the breakdown, as I see it. These families chose to simply not vaccinate their children. Their children were barred from attending public school for up to a month at a time because of the city's immunization policies. The families then sued the city, stating their religious freedoms were being violated. Judge Kuntz ruled against the families, stating that the Supreme Court, and this is in quotes, strongly suggested that religious objectors are not constitutionally exempt from vaccinations. Great. In essence, this case is about the needs, like I said before, the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few. In order to live in a society where we, we cohabitate, we share public buildings, our kids run around in schools together, you know, swim in swimming pools together, all sorts of things that we do as a collective. You really do need to vaccinate your children so the herd, which is everybody, can be healthy. Now, the plaintiff's lawyer asked that the case be reheard, and I guess, uh, you know, this means that they're simply just asking that the trial be reconsidered. Even in a city where the overall number of vaccines are high, which, you know, New York City, Brooklyn have, have overall good vaccination statistics, pockets of unvaccinated people are showing an increase in these ridiculous diseases that we supposedly mostly got rid of or completely got rid of. The city is backing, is backing up its strict vaccine mandate. And that mandate states, the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene has issued school admission immunization requirements. The law requires that all new students, children entering daycare, nursery school, preschool, or pre-kindergarten and kindergarten through grades 12 in New York City for the first time must show proof of having received the complete medical evaluation. And that medical evaluation list show a list of required vaccinations per grade that they're in, which, which in essence is per an age range. And there are laws that require children to get vaccinated before they attend school with few exceptions. Now, one of them is there might be a case where a child shouldn't get vaccinated for health reasons. There could be something that could that could affect their overall health if they get the shots. I, I honestly don't know if that's true or not. But Yeah, yeah. So, not- Jay, those are called medical exemptions, and those are totally non-controversial. Some- they're, they're legit. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. So, if you, And every state allows for medical exemptions to the vaccine requirement. Um, many states, 48 in fact, allow for religious exemptions, and that's what we're talking about here. And some states, and increasing states, allow for what's called philosophical exemptions, yeah. which just means I don't want to. You don't have, it doesn't have to be part of your religion. You could just say, I philosophically object to vaccines, and that's it. Check a box, and you're done. Which honestly, uh, in, in my opinion, is it's stupid to differentiate, though, between religious and philosophical, because religious is a philosophical objection so right you've got one that you yeah, got i agree other. with you rebecca all right well well hang on but the 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 difference is a practical one i understand what you're saying from a philosophical point of view but the question is how difficult is it to get the religious slash philosophical exemption the usually a religious exemption is a, is a couple more hoops you have to jump through like you may need to get a letter from whoever the head of your church is you know, or your parish or whatever saying, yes, the dictates of our religion are such that, you know, they can't be vaccinated. Whereas philosophical is just, you check a box. You I get have, your there's meaning. There's no burden. Of, I, I but, totally get your a, meaning. But it, they're, they're hoops without meaning. The only difference really when it comes down to it is that this is either something that one person individually believes or it's something that a person believes as part of a larger community. 
And, you know, I'm in favor of putting as many uh, barriers in front of people as possible to keep them from, you know, not vaccinating their children. But I feel like it's uh, not the most moral thing to use a differentiation like that in order to do it. I think that there are more direct and uh, honest ways to, to go about doing that. So uh, from a practical point of view, and this is the reason why the- – you know, these kinds of hair splitting are important. Those states that ha- in which it is more difficult to get an exemption have lower exemption rates. Right, and, and that's what I'm saying. Like yeah. I, I am in favor of making it more yeah. difficult. I just think that there are more honest ways to do that. Yeah, you may, you may be right. I think they should make the kids wear hazmat suits. I know that wasn't a serious recommendation, Bob, but just to follow, the problem here is we don't want to punish or stigmatize the kids because their parents are idiots. Well, right? I mean, thousands of kids get a- exemptions. Yeah. Per state. And the fact is the current way or the current state of affairs right now is that it's not working because these diseases are coming back. And there's there's quite an epidemic of whooping cough and, and other diseases right now out there and they're growing. So, you know, we have to we have to buckle down. Look, let, let's talk about what people are afraid of. Let's talk about the idea that we're giving the government power to say you can inject my body with X substance, right? That's a scary proposition. I get that. And I and I believe me, I will be the very first person to fight against anything that isn't above boards. And this is where we all disagree. This is where, you know, the vax, the pro-vax versus anti-vax groups completely disagree. And, and the only thing we have to tell us that information is science. Uh, what I'm, what I'm considering here now after this whole thing that blows my mind, like I'm, I'm very happy that this is happening, but it's also, you know, pretty, it's a pretty big step. The government is now stepping in saying you have to do this and we're, it's being enforced. We have to have a lot of checks and balances in here into not only the validity of the medication that the government could force or, you know, you know maybe force isn't the best word here, but it require, you know, maybe a required vaccination, you know, that's easy to digest. But I, I do fear that it could go in bad directions as well. You know, we have to be careful. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't be very critical of what is being is being required by us and there should be you know very intelligent people in play here that are able to help make very good decisions on what's required versus what's not required but vaccinations as they as they are today absolutely should be required yeah but as you said before Jay yeah the the scientific evidence is so solid i mean for philosophical reasons i'll never say 100% when we're talking about science but you know you get close enough that you could treat it as if it's completely well established the the consensus here and the evidence is overwhelming that vaccines are you know, probably the safest and most effective public health measure that we've ever devised. And the other issue here is that there are competing rights. We have to remember, we have to balance the rights of people, you know, not to have the government force them to do stuff versus the rights of kids who, let's say, have a medical exemption or the, you know, the few percent of people who just don't, aren't vaccine responders. They didn't make a, a robust antibody response. So they're depending on herd immunity and voluntary vaccine refusers, you know, you could argue endanger those children. They violate their exactly. rights to a public education. And so it's not a matter of just respecting you, someone's religious rights or personal rights. It's about balancing those against the rights of other kids who just don't want to get deathly ill. You know, so that's where I think we, you can make the mm-hmm. argument. And again, all we're saying is 
if you want access to public school, you have to be respectful of the rights of all the students who are there by not, you know, be a, be a typhoid Mary, right? So if you, if you don't want to get vaccinated, then homeschool. You know, don't, no one's going to force you to get vaccinated in that respect. The fact of the matter is, as with anything else and any other topic we discuss, our minds are open to whatever whatever the evidence points to, whatever the science points to. Yeah. And and when it comes to vaccinations, it's so easy to to stand firmly behind it. It is a, an incredible win for humanity. And the fact that there are people out there that actually aren't getting their kids vaccinated is disgusting to me. It blows my mind. Like they think they're making good healthy decisions for their children. And come on, Steve, let's be real about this. This isn't a religious decision. These are people that think they're making the right health decisions for their kids. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, I do think that there are people for whom it is part of their religious belief, but the vast minority. It's not even worth bringing them up. These are just, these are just, I don't know. I don't know that you could say that. I mean, but the recent increase definitely are the philosophical objectors. It's, it's the Jenny McCarthy crowd. I agree. And that's what, uh, you know, it, it seems. So previously, the minority of people who could make the claim that they had a legitimate religious exemption, it, the numbers were low enough that they could basically hide in the herd. But now, with, you know, with culturally based philosophical objections, you're getting these pockets of significant proportions of vaccine refusers. And then that's what's causing these outbreaks. So now hiding in the herd is not working anymore, which is why we're going to have to crack down. That's basically what it comes down to. Exactly. And I'm glad it's finally happening. I knew it was, it seemed inevitable. And I'm glad we're now seeing the first real hints of, of a core, you know, a coordinated effort to really try to put an end to this because it's ridiculous. All right, Rebecca, uh, continuing our trend of, of delving into controversial topics. You're going to tell us about the KFC quote unquote hoax. A couple of weeks ago, uh, the internet was abuzz with news of a little girl, little three-year-old girl named Victoria Wiltshire, who uh, was supposedly kicked out of a KFC because she had disturbing scars on her face that she got from being mauled by dogs. And uh, her grandmother, Kelly Mullins, uploaded this story, social media, it went viral and there was much outrage that these cruel KFC employees would kick out a poor little girl just trying to eat her mashed potatoes. And it ended up getting them over $100,000 in donations toward uh, Victoria's medical bills. And also KFC immediately pledged $30,000 to help with their bills. And then they launched an investigation to figure out who had done this horrible thing. And what they found, apparently, was that originally the grandmother had blamed a particular KFC location that had been closed for several years. And when this was pointed out to her, she said, oh, sorry, no, 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 it was this other one. So the franchise owner checked the security footage and for the entire day, no one matching the grandmother and granddaughter's descriptions entered that KFC. And according to the receipts from that day, uh, not a single person even ordered the mashed potatoes and sweet tea uh, order that they said that they had gotten. I'm not surprised. Um, so, yeah, it's it's looking like KFC has now come out and verified. Like, originally this was leaked by anonymous sources, but KFC has come forward, apparently, and uh, substantiated that. 
And they, they said that they, they pledged the $30,000 regardless of how the investigation turned out, which is kind of amazing. Um, it's a good PR move. It is. It's very good PR. Uh, but yeah, they say that this was a hoax and I'm likely to believe them. Uh, the family, of course, says it's not a hoax, but their response has basically been, nah, <laughs> and not any other substantial facts to, um, confirm or deny their case. So yeah, I think th- this has become yet another one of those, uh, learning moments for people on social media, I think, where often there are things that make the rounds on social media that are untrue. But every now and again, one pops up that has real world results. So in this case, a lot of people threw a lot of money at this family for what was apparently a lie. And if they lied about that, then one does wonder what all that money is going to go for. If Little Victoria has a college fund now, or if her grandmother has a new car, I don't know. And also, apparently, uh, employees at the KFC in question had been harassed, and there was a lot of negativity directed at them by the full force of the internet. The family is sticking by their story that this happened, but it it certainly couldn't have happened the way they said it did because the evidence doesn't support it. So are they mistaken? Was it a different KFC? Was it a different restaurant entirely? Is the whole thing made up? Did did this is a social media thing that got out of control? Like the grandmother didn't realize that millions of people are going to read it. I mean, we're entering a guessing game at this point, but based on the evidence, I can't imagine that there's a way that this was just a mistake. Uh, because the grandmother went so far as to first name a specific KFC and then to name another specific KFC and to even detail the fact that they got mashed potatoes and sweet tea, sweet tea, you know, a specific KFC type of meal. Uh, so, you know, if it happened, it happened at that KFC. Uh, yeah. and you know why it could have been to get money i think it's more likely it was just to get attention you know maybe one of those uh uh moonshausen's by proxy sort mm-hmm. of things you know where yeah and we don't know that anyone more than the grandmother is at fault because the aunt runs the facebook page for victoria but uh the story comes from the grandmother so you know maybe everybody's in on it maybe it's just the grandmother who knows? I do get the sense that that happens sometimes where people tell a small, they basically perpetrate a tiny hoax and then it gets carried away yeah. from them. Like, and, and you know, this is something that does make you feel sympathetic, not the fact that it's a hoax, but the original story is one that makes you feel sympathetic towards the family when up until that point, every single fact makes you hate the family with a passion. Like the, the, fact that i mean the grandmother wasn't involved in the attack it was the grandfather but you know that's all you know that's all that was in the news up until then is that the grandfather had these vicious pit bulls that he was probably abusing and you know left them alone with a toddler that's like that's the least sympathetic thing that i can imagine so you know maybe part of it stems from just a desire to get a little bit of sympathy for this little girl who does like the little girl absolutely deserves all of our sympathy. So Evan. Yes. It's time for Who's That Noisy? 
Oh, yeah. Thanks, Steve. Thank you for reminding us all. So, what we're going to do is play for you the new Who's That Noisy this week, seeing as how we are uh, bunching up some of our recordings. So, we're going to do a reveal of several of these in the uh, episodes to come. So, tonight, you get to enjoy a brand new one. New guessing game. So, see if you know this voice. And for each of the needs that are not fulfilled, there's pain. And it's registered on different levels of the brain. And what we found a way to do is go back down into the brain and get those pains out of the system. So you don't have to take pills and stuff to stuff it back. What we do is get little by little, take the pains out of the system that are based on not fulfilled need. Oh, those are some interesting comments. Yeah, some interesting psychobabble there. <laughs> Wait a minute, let's not, let's not rush to judgment that uh, this person is necessarily some sort of, oh, I don't know, quack or something, or <laughs> guru. What are you or, saying? <laughs> what, are, what are you thinking? <laughs> so, uh, you know, yeah, I don't know. Maybe some of our older crowd will recognize that voice. But uh, in any case, give it your best guess. WTN at theskepticsguide.org is the email address. Or go ahead and post it on the forums, suforums.com. Look for the subforum called Who's That Noisy? There, that is where you'll find it. Post your guess. Good luck, everyone. All right. Thanks, Evan. And we'll get caught up after uh, we get on our regular schedule. That's correct. All right. Well, we have one email this week. This one comes from Austin Basinger from Davie, Florida. And Austin writes, Recently, my older sister has been ranting and raving about esogenics. At first, I figured it was just another health craze she'd latched onto, but then I heard her talking about a sales model that's sounding suspiciously like a multi-level marketing scheme, and I instantly was suspicious of the entire thing. I did some research and very quickly discovered an article on science-based medicine. My sister is notoriously bad with money and has never been particularly good at spotting a scam. I'm just really worried this might significantly impact her life for the worse, and I'd like some help trying to steer her away from this path. So Austin has an older sister who's into snake oil and multi-level marketing schemes. Mm. <laughs> I got one of those too. Yeah. I yeah. can all relate to this <laughs> in some level. So yeah. the, bottom, the bottom line here is it's very easy to research and find that this company is complete crap, right? It's a nine-day calorie-restricting cleansing diet and pathway to incredible wealth. And they <laughs> – the fascinating thing about this particular multi-level marketing scam is that this company does not mince their words at all. They say you're going to get healthy if you use our products and you're going to get rich if you sell it. You know, like they mix that, they they cross that line that no, I haven't seen anybody else really cross so blatantly before. The, uh, the they claim that like this is a, this is just yet another company that like claims that toxins get built up in your fat and their system, their their products when you take them to lose weight, de it detoxes you, you lose weight, and they say something I've never heard anybody else say before as well is their diet supports body. Telomeres. The telomeres, yeah. Telomeres. Yeah. Yeah, so you'll live forever, Jay, if you eat this crap, basically. And, and yeah, get wealthy. But they're, they're making all of the structure function claims that are allowed. It supports this and helps that, right? Supports health, supports telomeres, maintain healthy cholesterol levels. It doesn't treat hypercholesterolemia. It's, it just maintains healthy cholesterol levels. So it's all the non-claims that you're allowed to make for supplements 
but they've written it, they've risen that to an art form. Um, and of course, it's all wrapped in a multi-level marketing pyramid scheme. Yeah. So to help you with your sister, this is difficult because people get very excited when they get sold emotionally on a multi-level marketing scam. You know, they'll, I've seen people go all the way in on these, you know, filling their basements up with the company's product and, you know, hitting up every single person in their lives and everything until it gets to the point where you just one day you stop hearing about it, you know, because they, they secretly gave up. And that's part of the problem is when they go so in, when they, all their chips are on the table, it's very difficult to talk someone out of it because they've invested a lot into it emotionally and probably financially. And number two, it's incredibly embarrassing. So I think a good angle here would be to just support your sister's education in understanding multi-level marketing and understanding why this company probably like so many others won't work simply because you have to get in so early in on the scam. And yes, this is a scam. You have to get in on this very early and be, you know, at the top of the pyramid in order to gain the, reap the benefits of all the people underneath you. And by the time the vast majority of us hear about these multi-level marketing uh, businesses, you're, it's already too late. You're already past that point where you're not going to make any of the money and all the testimony testimonials that these poor, poor people that get suckered into this stuff. They, you know, they, this, this particular website said, do you want to make $500 a week or a hundred thousand dollars? It's like, get out of here. <laughs> so actually Harriet Hall wrote two articles about this on science-based medicine. The first one just, you know, examining the claims and the website and deconstructing it and showing how it's based on entirely nothing. Uh, and then what, what I've noticed is this is an interesting phenomenon. When I, when I deconstruct a snake oil a claim that is marketed with multi-level marketing, then I get like people coming into the comments, like attacking me or saying, you know, how wonderful the product is and really making a hard sell for it. So yeah, are you, are you selling this yourself? You know, so that, that's definitely is a phenomenon that happens with the multi-level marketing snake oil scams. Um, so that happened to Harriet. You know, she had a lot of feedback by people who were in, who were sucked into the multi-level marketing scam. Um, eventually, they actually did publish a study, and then uh, Harriet did a follow-up uh, article analyzing the study. And of course, it was terrible. I mean, it was so bad that the numbers in their tables of data didn't even add up. Oh, and and boy. and Harriet was emailing somebody from the company asking them about this, and they gave her the runaround, and then stopped responding to her. Yep. It's like, yeah, yeah, we noticed that too. The numbers don't quite <laughs> add up. Yeah, hmm. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was just Got, crap. It was gotta just, go. I yeah. in my car. <laughs> What's that over there? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just have to go to my car real quick. <laughs> <laughs> it's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one, and one fictitious, and I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake-a-roni. We have a special theme this week, and <gasps> and we have four items. Cause I'm just I'd like to point out that I did not groan. Feeling particularly frisky today. <laughs> All right. Do it. Did you groan on the inside? The theme a is... Bit, yeah. The theme <laughs> is... Just, just saying that is, an, is, in effect, a type of groan. That's true. It's a metagrown. The, the theme is Earth. The Earth. You guys are familiar with the Earth, right? I've heard of it, yeah. The Earth. Okay. 
Mm. Four items about. I'm our, more familiar with Wind and Fire about a right? <laughs> <our> lovely planet. <laughs> nice yes. one. All right, here we go. Item number one. Relatively speaking, Earth is smoother than a bowling ball. Item number two. There are about 8.6 million lightning strikes per day on the Earth. Item number three, all the Earth's gold could cover the entire surface of the planet to a depth of 1.5 feet, or 0.45 meters. And item number four, there is about as much volume of ice in, Ant- in Antarctica as there is water in the Atlantic Ocean. God damn it. I hate these so much. <laughs> uh. Jay, go first. This one here about the relatively speaking Earth is smoother than a bowling ball. I read that somewhere or something. I mean, it, it, I'm just going to say that one is true. <laughs> as silly as it sounds. Now, Steve, is the thumb hole Grand Canyon? What is that? Yeah. Not, it's more not, like the Marianas Trench. Yeah, not including, like not including the thumb holes. Okay. Uh, this, the second one here about the lightning. Yes, the number's huge. Lightning is always hitting the Earth. At all times. So, yeah. I, I, I don't think that that's an exaggeration at all. The third one about the Earth's gold, man, covering the entire surface of the planet. 1.5 feet. Like, what? I don't know about that one. And then this last one, uh, there's about as much volume of ice and as your water in the, in, like, the ocean. Yeah, okay. I'm going to say that the gold one is the fake. And I'll tell you why, Steve. Yeah. Because I'm not knee-deep in gold right now. (laughs) Where are they hiding all of this gold, by the way? There would be a hell of a lot more bling out there if there was 1.5 freaking feet of gold. I mean, man, I would – everything – I would have books made out of gold. You know what I'm saying? I'd have like my – Jay, are you serious? Yeah. I would actually – go. I would own Kronk. That's how cheap gold would be. All right. Well, well, Bob, you seem to have an opinion, so why don't you go next? All right. Um – Earth smoother than a bowling ball? Yeah, I could totally buy that, I think. Um, lightning, <laughs> 8.6 million lightning strikes. That sounds like, uh, I know there's a lot that sounds a little high. I was thinking more 8.59, but I'll go with that. The Antarctica and water, that doesn't sound right either. But I have a much more emotional reaction to the gold, but for more reasonable reasons than Jay's. Um, Bob, would I, you get crunk? And if yes, what would it say? Okay. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, that, okay. that just, I've, taken, I've got an image in my head it, of, I'll answer you, Jay. It would be a giant uh, ring and it would be a skull. Ooh, I like the way you think. Cool. All Do right, rings count as crunk? No, but you could put, you could oh. like put it in your mouth, but no, wouldn't fit on your teeth. I've, I've got an image in my head of, um, all the gold in the world and it could certainly not be that much to cover the entire surface of 1.5 feet. But then, but now I'm thinking, Wait, was the image I saw many, many years ago, was that the image of how much has been mined or how much there really is? So that could just blow it right out of the water. But um, huh. I'm going mm. to go with the gold anyway. Mm. All right, Evan. Uh, bowling ball, smoother than a bowling ball. So, uh, well, I don't know. I don't, I'm not so quick to dismiss this one. Yeah, I don't know science. Move on. It's some, something wrong about that one a little bit. You know, it doesn't – certainly it doesn't um, – you know, your first instinct is like, no way. And then you think, well, it must be true because it's so ridiculous. And then you think, well, maybe not. See? See how I got to that point? Uh, so I don't know about that one. Uh, the 8.6 million lightning strikes per day on Earth uh, is probably right. Uh, what constitutes a lightning strike is the key here. 
very, very, very small lightning strikes, m- micro strikes, I believe that they're called. And if they're not, I just, you know, coined a new phrase. These micro strikes, uh, are probably occurring in the atmosphere at ridiculous rates. And, uh, there may even be more than 8.6 million. So that one looks, sounds good. I know what you guys are saying about the gold. It's the old story about, I think, the mined gold, a mine, uh, will fill an Olympic-sized swimming pool, roughly. But, as Bob said, you know, there's probably a lot more gold than we can get to. Um, so how much is buried, basically, is what it comes down to, and that's what you have to elaborate. Plus, you have to take all the little bits of gold that appear in nature, you know, inside our bodies. There's tiny bits of gold, and you have to account for all those. So I don't know, but... And then there's the last one, Antarctica, water in the Atlantic Ocean, equal. Uh, yeah, I, I can believe that. I don't, I've never heard this before. I can believe it. I guess it's coming down between the bowling ball and the uh, and the gold. Ugh, gosh, you guys are going to drag me into this gold thing, aren't you? And I guess I'm going to have to go with that one. But I won't be surprised if I'm wrong, and it's the bowling ball. So there. Always like to hedge your bets, huh, Evan? Always. But you went with the gold. Yep, yep, I'm putting my nickel down on the gold. Okay. All right, Rebecca. <laughs> yeah, for me, it's between the gold and the ice in Antarctica. I'm trying to think, like, Antarctica's pretty big, but I can't, and I think that ice covers all of it, I think. Uh, but I can't imagine, like, maps are always weird, and I can't imagine how big that is compared to the Atlantic Ocean. And also... The Atlantic Ocean is very deep. <laughs> I don't know. Like, uh. Join us. I. <laughs> there's, I feel like there's a lot riding on this because I've gotten a lot wrong lately. <laughs> you were the solo loser last week. I you? know. Oh, I, know, I wouldn't, so I wouldn't term it like that. At least if I, that's if I go with the, hell. at least if I go with the pack, even if I'm a loser, I won't be alone. <laughs> yes. Nice. It's better to not lose alone. Trust me. I don't know. That's like, it, how thick can that ice be? All the water in the Atlantic Ocean. But then the gold thing is also crazy. I, if I were to guess, I, I thought that Steve was going to say it would cover the earth in like a thin film, like aluminum. Yeah, like but, yeah. aluminum. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. All right. I guess I'll go with the gold thing just so I'm not the lone loser again. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> All, right. All right. All right. Well, I guess we'll take these in order. Oh, no. We'll Wait, what does that with mean? Number one, <laughs> relatively speaking, Earth is smoother than a bowling ball. You guys Watch. all think this one is science. Watch. Now, some references <laughs> used billiard ball as the reference. But, yes, the Earth is as smooth as a billiard slash bowling ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. much smoother, in fact. So one calculation I encountered, which means, you know, that if you, the highest mountain and the deepest trench compared to the diameter of the earth, the radius of the earth is still a lot less than the acceptable parameters of smoothness of a bowling or billiard ball. So one calculation I found showed that proportionately, if, so in other words, if a billiard ball were enlarged to the size of the earth, the maximum allowable bump would be 28,000 meters, uh, oh. which is a lot more than Damn. the 8,000 meters of Everest and the wow. um, 11,000 meters of the Mariana Trench. So, yeah, it's the, the, the bumps on a billiard ball proportionally are greater than the 
trenches and mountains on Earth proportionally. Well, these yep. billiard ball makers suck then, I guess. You know, we got to clean those up. But they point out that if the Earth were a billiard ball, though, it wouldn't pass muster because it's not a perfect sphere. It's a yeah, it's spheroid. Yeah, it's spheroid, yes. Yeah, it's right. smooth enough, but it's not round enough, spherical enough. All right, let's go on to number two. There are about 8.6 million lightning strikes per day on Earth. How many would that be per second? I yeah, wonder. I was thinking of calculating that a lot. Well, it would be 100 per second. Oh, I totally what believe that. I totally believe What did I say? What and did that I, is what science, 100 per second. So, Evan, you asked about these. These are observable. So I don't know if micro flashes Ooh. would count. These are, have to be big enough. These are extrapolated from surveys observing lightning flashes. About 80% of these are cloud to cloud or in the middle of a cloud. Yeah. And 20% strike the earth. Together, they're 8.64 million per day, which is... I was right. There was a little bit more. Ah. It was astounding. When I saw that number, I'm like, whoa, that's a big number. You know, I, I could believe big it, number. but it was, yeah, I was hoping it would shock somebody into guessing it. Huh, uh, I get it. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> let's go on to number three. All the Earth's gold Uh-oh. could cover the entire surface of the planet to a depth gold. of 1.5 feet Say or it. 0.45 meters. Say and this Fiction. one is – now, Bob, I know the image you're talking about. <laughs> you do. I, 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 could, I could see the image. It's Love a guy it. standing next to it's a block a big of gold. Block of gold. Like, yeah. The big as a house, maybe smaller than a house, and All it was right, shockingly small. So Shock. yeah, like one, one another one I saw was um, the center court at Wimbledon. Yeah, you know that size to a height of about fifteen feet. It's a, it's, a, it's a pretty big block of gold. That's all the mined gold. Oh, it's not all the effort. gold, mm-hmm. but but still not enough. All the mineable gold in the Earth's crust would not be that much. Yes. But all the Earth's gold would be, because this one is science. <laughs> oh, ah! God damn this it. This includes gold. I psyched myself out. In the core. <laughs> core? Yeah, there's gold there's down there. There's core gold? Uh, there yes. is not. I've been there. There's no gold there. There's, there's gold in so the our core? The, the Earth's core has a, I don't know how else to put it, a shit ton of gold down it, there? It does. It has a shit ton of gold. Yep. So... When the earth was all molten before the crust solidified, all the heavy stuff go. sank down to the middle of the earth. And that includes – there's a huge chunk of iron down there, but there's also nickel and yeah. other stuff. And there's a, a lot of gold. That's where most of the gold would be. You know, that, that 1.5 feet of gold around the earth, most of that is in the core. And then once the crust solidified, subsequent meteorites containing heavy elements like iron and gold – that's all the all the stuff that we could mine from the ground are from meteorites following the hardening of the crust. Really? So, Steve, does that mean that you're going to get me crunk or what? Hang on. The other the other source <laughs> would be volcanoes bringing it up from deep yes. down. So I know that there are some like gold veins that are they exist because of volcanic activity bringing it up from, from what deep the hell? Down. There's iron in the core. It is, it's not gold. It's heavier. It's too heavy, though. They calculated how heavy it must be, and it's too heavy to account for it by iron. There's got to be some gold in there. It could wow. be um, neutronium it or could something. Be, 
Yeah, Crezio Dymium. But you you can't you can't prove that though, Steve. Jay, this is this is the science. Don't don't, don't deny the science because you lost science. No, nah, it's fine. I don't mind losing. I mean, I, it's actually pretty damn awesome that something yeah. so amazingly valuable. And I certainly don't mean the the monetary value. I mean, it's a valuable substance. It's really cool that yeah. that much of it is so close. Thank you for yeah, joining us, value. Rebecca. Yeah, I'm, le- yeah. I'm legitimately angry right now. <laughs> oh, you should. Oh, you should be. Which means there is about as much volume of ice in Antarctica as there is water in the Atlantic Ocean is fiction. Yeah, obviously. However, when I was, when I was researching this theme, I went to universetoday.com and they have a infographic, 50 amazing facts about Earth. And I, some of these were sourced from there. I always went to an original source though. And one of them says, Antarctica has as much ice as the Atlantic Ocean has water. And I was like, huh, that's pretty shocking. So I, I looked it up and they're wrong by an order of magnitude. What? What universe I, are they in? An order of magnitude? At least it wasn't yeah. by, you informed by Fraser? Uh, yeah, I'll have to email him. Fraser, if you're no. listening, you gotta make, gotta fix this. So the Atlantic oh, Ocean oh, has 310 cubic kilometers, 310 million cubic kilometers of water by volume 310 million cubic cubic kilometers and the uh, ice in the in the antarctica has about 26 million cubic kilometers uh, so it's not even close the atlantic ocean is more than an order of magnitude more and i looked at multiple sources to make sure i was getting it correct you know yeah so the volume um is 20 6.54 million cubic kilometers, including the ice shells. So I'm sorry, excluding the ice shells. Yeah, it's, it's like 28 if you include it. So it's not even close. 28 versus 300. So I, I think somebody, somebody just made an order of magnitude because it's exactly, you know, almost exactly one order of magnitude. Somebody just misplaced a zero and that's, and that led to that infographic. But that's a typo. When I find something that's wrong, Something is wrong on the internet. I like using that as the uh, as the fiction because you know the the, the meme is out there. Legitimately angry. <laughs> All right, let's move past this moment. Now the the ice uh, the ice on the in in, in Antarctica is freaking deep. You know, it's like yeah. kilometers of ice. Oh, yeah, it's miles. Yeah, yes. but it's uh, landmass. Lots of the ice. Atlantic Ocean is bigger. <laughs> It's so Steve, yeah. after you after you sweep us and you you know you go hang out with your wife for a little while, then you're lying in bed and like, the, the, you sometimes giggle like, and she just turns to you and she's like, "What?" and you're like, "Nothing, nothing." <laughs> I can uh, just see maybe. you so stinking pleased of yourself lying in bed there, like going over your day. I swept him again. No. All right. It's good not, job. It's not Steve. that superficial. Thank you. Very good. Very I good. I take pleasure in having an, an interesting science or fiction. It doesn't really matter how well you guys do. Um. All right, Jay. Do you got a quote for us? Yeah. Have any of you people ever heard of someone called Steve from Canada? Canada. Canada. New country, I suppose. Uh, Steve sent me an email from Canada, but he's he misspelled the country that he lives in. He spelled it Canada. So I like the sound of joke. it. Yeah, Steve is from Ottawa, and here is this awesome Bertrand Russell quote. Where there is evidence, no one speaks of faith. We do not speak of faith that two and two are four or that the earth is round. We only speak of faith when we wish to substitute emotion for evidence. And that is Bertrand Russell. He 
was a British philosopher, log- logistician, status, mathematician, logistician. historian, logistician. social critic, <laughs> and political activist. Too many syllables. I just picked up his uh, book about the Vietnam War. Bertrand uh, Russell! Okay. <laughs> it, it ended in a tie, Rebecca. Vietnam. Just, spoiler, spoiler alert. Thank you. Is that do we do we rate that the Vietnam War is a tie? We According would. to a fish called Wanda. The yes. Vietnamese wouldn't. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Sure. <laughs> thank Steve. you, Steve. Thank <laughs> you, sir. And yeah. until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.